0: Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous ways in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Well, if you are new to Sacred City Church, and by new, I mean the past three months. Uh, my name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, this summer, the elders have gr- uh, granted my family and I a three-month-long sabbatical to rest and rejuvenate after 11 years of ministry. Uh, my wife, Amanda, was up here singing this morning, uh, and uh, you know, she's the real reason that you guys missed us. I missed that too, actually. She doesn't do that at home, okay? <laughs> It's a bummer, um, but my wife, Amanda, and I and our five kids, uh, we were traveling. We did a lot of traveling while we were gone. Uh, I drove over 75 hours in two months time. Um, Amanda was holding down the fort with the five kids and I was uh, listening to audiobooks mostly <laughs> and trying to stay awake. Uh, we went down to Gulf Shores, Alabama. We went to Sandusky, Ohio. Not for a Tommy Boy convention, but for a wedding. Amanda's brothers, Amanda's brother got got married, and we went to our favorite place on earth, Keystone, Colorado. We had a great uh, two months, and then we spent the month of August at home. Uh, I spent it building a pretty epic treehouse for my kids, uh, enjoying a lot of family time, and attending Sacred City Moline. We had, we really did have a a once-in-a-lifetime summer. And we made so many great experiences and memories as a family. And I just really do, I want to thank all the elders for giving me the time away. I want to thank all of you for giving me the time away. I thank the elders for carrying the weight that I normally carry and giving my family and myself such an amazing gift. Um, I also want to say just how much I missed our church family. I've learned a lot of Lessons over the past three months and one of them is how much I love you. And it's not that great taking three months away from your best friends and spiritual family. It's not ideal, I'll tell you that. It's not that fun. It's pretty hard actually. It's pretty difficult. It's pretty, it's pretty lonely. And so it, was, uh, it wasn't easy. I'm glad to be back. I told the elders, never again! That's what I told them. Five years, I might change my mind, but that's what I told them when I got back, okay? So it's with much gladness and thankfulness that I get to step back into the pulpit this morning. I also wanna thank everyone for the kind notes, the gifts, the encouragement that you sent myself and the elders the past week. I feel truly blessed to be one of your pastors and I, feel, um, I just feel thankful that I get to be up here doing what God's called me to do and be your pastor and in this community. It's the other thing, coming back, traveling, um, stepping into the worship, it was, I mean, this is, I would go to this church no matter what, like, it's just, my soul needed it, and I was so glad to be back, so thank you everyone, and uh, now we're gonna get, get, to, get to work here this morning, um, we're gonna be studying Psalm 139, it's another psalm written by King David to the choir master, to be memorized and sung by the people of God as worship to God. This beloved psalm is a beautiful, this is how, if I could put in one sentence, this is a beautiful poetic description of this truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs nine ten. Now, when I say that, immediately we have a problem this morning. When our 21st century ears hear the words fear or fearful, or even the words terrible or awful, we immediately think of something bad, something that should be rejected, something that we should keep at a distance. Well, if you have a biblical worldview, you you should understand we shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't believe that way. All of these terms in the Bible can mean something akin to what we would call awesome. Except awesome, man, that term's just been blown out. Has it not? Awesome. It's like we've given that one to the surfers and the skateboarders or something, right? Like, uh, it's like awesome is supposed to mean something akin to fearful, terrible, a little bit scary. One night while we were in Gulf Shores, I woke up about 3 a.m. to one of the most terrifying and amazing lightning storms that I had ever seen. I was looking out over pitch black ocean and electrical currents were shooting down out of the heavens one right after another. Some were shooting sideways across the sky, reflected off of the black ocean water, moon in the sky. This happened for over an hour. Now, more than likely, this was happening far out at sea. I was sitting comfortably on my balcony watching it in absolute wonder. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I just kept saying it. Tempted to go wake up my wife knowing I'd be dead if I did. (laughs) Now, I probably would have had a much different perspective on that situation if I was actually out at sea where the thing was happening. If I'd been in a fishing boat in the middle of that storm, I doubt, oh, wow, wow, I doubt I would be doing that. My location changed my perspective. It was fearful. It was terrible. It was awesome. But I knew that I was not going to be destroyed by it. So that fear actually brought me to worship. And what we're going to learn this morning is that God, the real God, not the God of your imagination, not the God that this culture supposedly worships, but the real God, the creator God should be feared. He is awesome. He is wonderful. He is absolutely holy. He is Terrible as an army with banners, as the King James Version translated Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 10. And every single one of us, if we rightly see who this God is, we we will either be repulsed by him and we will run from him or we will fall at his feet and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we're gonna see shortly, there is absolutely no middle ground No one with any intellectual honesty or consistency can read what we are about to read and then have some kind of lukewarm reaction to it. It's either going to scare you to death or bring you to worship, or maybe both. Let me pray for us. We're going to get started. Father God, we tremble before your word the God who created all things has spoken to us in his word and in his son and we tremble at it this morning. We need you to speak to us. We are crooked and need to be made straight. Father, we are in error and we need the truth. There's so many aspects of our life that are broken that we need you to mend and we need you to heal. And you don't do any of those things apart from your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is what we need. And so I pray this morning, as a man who is still sinful, I pray this morning that you would give me grace to communicate your eternal truth to your people. They, wouldn't hear, they would not hear my opinions. They would hear your words spoken to them. That something in your word this morning would, would turn something on in them, would spark life, would bring renewal and health to them this morning, Father. Let your sheep hear your voice. I pray that you would do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Psalm 139, verse 1. If you'd open up your Bibles and follow along with me this morning. Again, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. We're gonna see how my, you know, I haven't done this in three months. We're gonna see how my voice holds up this morning. I'm a little, I'm a little concerned. At least you guys got the first shot. Next service might be bad. Here we go. Oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, oh, God, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. Notice here that the psalm begins by David acknowledging God's past activity in his own life. This is how he begins this psalm. God, you've searched me. God, you have known me, right? He's making the reader aware of God's active involvement in David's life in the past. He says, you've searched me and known me. He's acknowledging God's active presence in his life, and he is very aware that God has done something significant in his life, in his soul. This is also, a way of saying, I have been past tense, past tense, saved by God. I'm known by him. God's got inside my soul, searched it, knows everything there, and God has known me. That's in term of intimacy, as in when Adam knew Eve, and she conceived, that God knows David in an intimate sense, and David is absolutely aware that he is known by God and saved put it in our vernacular, David is a Christian. But David shows us what we should do. He doesn't just take this simple thought in his mind and then let it go and then he just goes on about his business. David, as an act of worship, takes what seems to be a simple truth, brings it in, and starts to chew on it. You've got to a mind that likes to know things, a mind that likes to get to the truth, a mind that likes details, a mind that wants to figure things out. So did David. What does it mean that God has searched me? What does it mean that God knows David? Now, theologically, we call this God's omniscience. Big word. It means that God knows everything. But I doubt many of us have a very visceral reaction to that term or concept. Omniscience, cool word. So what David does is he begins to work out that truth into his everyday life. Or, in, or he begins to work out that big theological truth, that big term. He begins to work it out in everyday language. Look at what he does in verse two. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. God knows you exhaustively. He knows everything about everything and everything about every one. He knows where you are physically. He knows what you are doing at all times. He actually knows it outside of time. He knew it before you're going to do it. He knows it eternally. God is He knows everything at all times, all at the same time. He doesn't have to wait for the future to happen. He already knows it. He knew it before he created the world. That means you are never outside God's active awareness. You are always in God's mind. He's not like a distracted parent like me. My kids get on me all the time because if Bama's playing, I don't have children. <laughs> and I'll hear, I'll hear them laughing and I look over and then I can see the look on her face and I look at my wife and oh, she's been talking to me for five minutes. But I was watching the game. Yes, I have children. Yes, I have a wife, but they're not in my active imagination in this moment. A first down is, okay? That's what I'm focused on right now. God's not like that. You are always in God's mind, actively in the front of, if he had a cerebral cortex and all the stuff, right? But you are in the front of his mind. He's actively aware of everything going on in your life right now. He is not asleep on the job. But his knowledge is even more penetrating than that. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. That means he can read your mind right now, right now, right now. He knows your thoughts. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Not only can God know you, and not only can God read your mind, He does. It's not like a computer software program that He only uses now and then, just to check up to see how you've been, right? He actively reads your thoughts, every one of them. He's acquainted with all your ways, so He knows where you are, he can read every thought you've ever had. He, he's acquainted with your ways. He's there with, the, looking at you as you do whatever it is that you do. Verse four. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. God's knowledge of you is total and complete. There is nothing about you that he does not know. He knows every thought you've had. He knows every word you've ever spoken. He's read the journal that you didn't think anybody was ever going to read. Even the pages you tore out and threw away. He's read it all. He knows it all. And he knows everything you have ever done. In your entire life, God knows you better than you know yourself. His knowledge of you is comprehensive, intimate, and absolutely total. How does that make you feel? Does it terrify you? Does it make you feel a little smothered? David would agree. Verse 5. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. David says, God, you came after me. You cornered me you blocked me, you smothered me, your knowledge arrested me, and then you handpicked me. Now you remember David's anointing. You remember that David was out in the field tending sheep, doing his own thing, when the prophet came to anoint the next king of Israel. And he said, bring in all your sons to David's father. And he did, except for David, the youngest one out in the field. And the prophet went, nope, 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 six times, no. Do you have any more kids? I've got my youngest sheep boy out back. You want me to go get him? Go get him. Hand picked from the sheep to be king over Israel. David's like, I didn't do that. I wasn't raised my whole life. Really hope we start this monarchy thing. If we could start a monarchy, maybe I could you know, find something great to do with my life. No, he's tending sheep, he's worshiping God, and God handpicks him, and now this blows the circuits of David's mind. You blocked me, you prevented every exit, you've been pursuing me my whole entire life, you've known me, I can't get ahead of myself, you've known me a lot what what happens to david here verse 6 such knowledge is too wonderful for me it's high i cannot attain it the real god who sees all my little brain can't contain that type of knowledge and his circuits are fried so, those first six verses are David meditating on the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. But David doesn't stop there. Not only is God omniscient, God is also omnipresent. Look at verse 7. Let's go, I'm going to go ahead and read 7 through 12, and then we'll comment on it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Now, here's the interesting thing. When you think about God, that God isn't just this little sky fairy, you know, uh, up in the sky, that that every time that you, you need something, maybe you can call on him, you can rub a lamp, and he can maybe give you a little blessing and help you with your mental health. That when you realize that, no, 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 God penetrates, knows everything there is to know about you. That is concerning. And one of the natural human response to a God like that is to run, right? You know, if you ever had a controlling mom... If you ever had a mom that just kind of smothered, just wanted to know everything about everyone and all of your friends and what are you doing right now and what are you thinking and and just hovering over you? There's this sense where you're just, I just want to run from that, right? And then you start giving her the, the stiff arm and then she's pulling you in tighter, right? There's a sense in us that that kind of knowledge, that kind of sweeping universal knowledge is repulsive to us. And so David immediately says, when I think about God hemming me in and blocking me and knowing everything about me, that scares me that I want to push away from that. I want to run. But then guess what? His good theology kicks in. You know what? I'm going to run. And that's what he says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And this word presence here actually means face. How can I get away from your face? You see everything I've done. You know my stinking thoughts. Your face is always before me. What kind of face is that? You mad at me? Are you frustrated with me? Are you upset? Are you sad? Am I a disappointment? i want to run from that face. Good theology kicks in. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, what he's doing here is poetic description of the sunrise. As the sun rises up and it looks like the light spreads over all of creation. He calls it the wings of the morning. So if I go all the way out to the sunrise, you are there. There. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, I could go all the way out to sea and maybe even go all the way down to the depths of the sea, even there your right hand shall lead me. And Jonah says, That's true. Right? I'm not doing what you call me to do, God. I'm not going to Nineveh. God's like, We'll see about that. Right? Throw him over. Whale swallows him, takes him to the depths, of the depths of the sea. What does Jonah do? Can't get away from your presence. You're everywhere. Yes, I am. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Even there, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. I know what I'll do. I'll hide from the light. I'll hide from the light. I'll run to wickedness. I'll run to sin. I'll try to get as far away from God as I possibly can. And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. He's saying, there's nowhere I can go to get away from this real God. David tells us, everywhere I could possibly go, God, listen, is fully present there. This is not the clockmaker God of the deist who believes that God kind of created the world like a giant clock. He wound it up and then he just kind of silently sits back and let things play out without his active involvement. this is not like, as I heard it described once, this is not like a gas that fills the room and as a gas fills the room and spreads out, there's a little bit over there and a little bit over there, but the bigger the room, the the less presence there is. No, no, no. God is 100% present everywhere in the world, in the universe, all at the same time. He's fully there. everywhere, all at the same time. That means he is just as present on earth. He is just as present in this room as he is in the furthest galaxy of heaven. He is eternally present. Now, I know these these are huge ideas, right? And it's easy for us to treat them simply as interesting intellectual pursuits, God knows everything, the past, the present, the future. All are fully known by him and you can never get away from his face. One man who in the 1800s got addicted to opium. He got hurt and he got addicted to opium and he lost everything and he wound up uh, down, but literally down by the river addicted to drugs lost everything in his life he's meditating on Psalm 139 and he comes to his senses and he realizes God is here with me as an addict God is right here and he called him the hound of heaven and he wrote one of the most beautiful and amazing poems that have ever been written in the English language called the hound of heaven there's nowhere I can go that he's not there but if you're like me And you like some good theology, you might be kind of tempted just to get up in your head and nerd out whoa, whoa, whoa. omniscience and omnipresence. What does that mean? (laughs) David is so brilliant. David doesn't go up into the galaxies and meditate on the wonders and get up all in his head. David goes, to the most precious, smallest, most intimate area of knowledge in the human experience. He goes to the womb of his own mom. Look what he says in verse 13. How far does God's knowledge stretch? How far does God's presence stretch? Stretch, for you formed my inward parts. Hebrew says literally, kidneys. You formed my kidneys. Now, why did he say kidneys? That's just a euphemism. That's the way they used to speak. The same way I would say to you, you know my heart. Now, what I mean by that is, you know I have functioning valves that are pumping blood all over my body. No, it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. You, you know that I love you. You know what's in my heart. You know that I care for you. He says, you formed my kidneys. <laughs> I, I love it. That's kind of funny, actually. God's knowledge. You know my kidneys. All right, let's keep going. You knitted me. You knitted me Together. In my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully. Hear that word? Fear? Why is it fearfully? Fearfully and wonderfully made. What's he doing? This doesn't make sense to me. You were with me in the, my mother's womb, putting me together, stitching me together. Wonderful are your works, full of wonder, full of splendor. My soul, this immaterial part of me made by God, this God radar in my soul that screams out, you have a creator, you have a God. This part of my soul knows it very well. Look at it. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, so the the most hidden place in all the earth, let's say, a mother's womb, you were there actively at work making me into the exact person you wanted me to be. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your eyes saw the fertilized egg. In your book, whoa, he's got a book. In your book were written, God is an author writing us into existence, every one of them, every one of what? The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So he's saying, not only, listen to this, does God know you intimately? He doesn't just know you, he made you, he formed you, he designed you for the days that you would live in. He knows all the days. He knows exactly what you're going to encounter. He built you custom designed for these days. David says, how deep does your knowledge go? How intimate is your personal presence? You knew me and you were forming me when I was inside the womb of my mother. Now this is some theological reasons that every consistent Christian is pro-life. Now, my wife filled me in on something this week. Listen, ladies, motherhood is an, is an amazing gift. Being a mom and caring a child is something that you should be proud of and you should pursue. You were made to do it. In spite of what our insane, upside-down clown world of a culture that we are living in says, women, you are still the only ones among us with a womb where a human being can be brought into this world. And that's never changing. But Amanda was telling me yesterday, she gets these memes and such, these meme things, you know, that the kids do. And there was a meme going around about women. and said, when you feel less than, when you don't feel good enough, when you feel sad about your life, just remember you're the type of person who can make a human. Now listen, can we be honest for a minute? My wife has carried five children into her, in her womb. It is a wonderful mystery. It is incredibly difficult. Thank God I'm a man. <laughs> now I'm not trying to disparage motherhood at all. But come on. Can we be honest here for a minute? I mean, I never came home from work and found my wife focused on knitting together kidneys. Well, what are you doing, babe? Trying to get this cornea figured out. (laughs) Real important that it's got working eyes. Oh, okay, right? Wakes up in the middle of the night. These kneecaps, they're these kneecaps. They're so, the engineering behind these kneecaps. Do you understand what I'm doing right now? right? The engineering that goes into these kneecaps is quite intense, honey, and I'm working that out. No, my wife spent nine months eating whatever she wanted and sleeping as long as possible. She was trying to survive giving birth. That's our only worry. Her only worry was to make it to the end with the baby that came out. What was going on in those nine months? God was doing the impossible. God is in the womb working it out. God is in the, womb, in the womb forming and shaping and designing like a master craftsman. God is creating a soul that will live forever somewhere. He determined our frame. He determined our children's frame. That means just the way we are. Kids come out different. If you've had, I've had five of them. They're all different. When men and I never really talked about it, what do you want? I'd like a really calm one this time. (laughs) I'd like one that says, yes, mom, sure. That's the one I'd want. Didn't work. When David thinks about this, He pictures himself in the darkness of his mother's womb. Listen, over 3,000 years ago, we could add that. Remember, this is thousands of years before an ultrasound. And he says, God was there like an engineer and a craftsman designing me, forming me, making me purposefully for the days that I will be born into. God was building a king in the womb. Think about that. You were custom designed by God for these days. David knew that, and what did it do? It brought him to worship. I love the way Scripture speaks of David's life and death in the New Testament. Listen to to Luke, the historian, the writer of Acts, in chapter 13, verse 36. Listen to how he speaks of David. Quote, For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David says, you wrote me in your book. You know all of my days before I was even born in my mother's womb. You knew me and you wrote me in your book. And now the New Testament writers looking back on it says, David served the purpose of God in his generation and then died. I want it to be said the same of me. I pray that it said the same of you. God has written us in to this moment. And this leads David. He meditates on this reality that he is fully known and constantly living his life, Coram Deo, in the face of God. And this brings him to declare in verse 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. I want to know what you think of me, God. I want to know what you think about everything, God. I want to know your word more than anything, God. If I would count your thoughts, they're more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. I wake up, and there you are. But this is also here where the psalm takes a strange turn. The next three verses seem almost out of place. Let's read them, verse 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. What is going on here? David goes from contemplating the uniqueness and the holiness of God to worship and exulting in God's presence and God's creativity and God's godness to all of a sudden what? Sin? How many of us would rebuke David here? David, don't hate. We don't hate David. You're not supposed to hate. You're supposed to love everybody. This is where most of us in the modern evangelical church get it wrong. And we have an incoherent Christianity. God's word tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 8:13, Amos 5:15. Here David is doing exactly what is appropriate when you are meditating on the holiness of God. As I get into the presence of God, as I get near to God, as I am aware of his holiness, his uniqueness, his purity, his beauty, I hate everything that mars it. I hate everything that rivals it. I hate everything that attacks it. As I love my wife, I hate anything that tries to hurt her and come against it. I hate it with a perfect hatred. But remember, David is in prayer here. And he's teaching other people how to pray. He's probably singing right now. And prayer is pouring out your soul honestly to God. It's not saying things to God that you hope are true. God, I just really pray, you know, this enemy that I have here, I just really pray that you would bless him. Bless this person, Lord. Make his life go well. When in your heart you're saying, he's hurting me, he's lying about me, he's doing bad things to me. He's speaking with God and he's being honest and this is a righteous reaction to being face-to-face with the holy God. God, your enemies are my enemies. It is totally okay to hate those who hate God. Now listen, Here's you better hear this. What's not okay is to act hatefully towards them. We are called by God to act, to behave in a loving way towards everyone, all of those, even people who hate God, even people who are our enemies. Now let's think about this. No doubt, Saul, or no, no doubt, David hated Saul when Saul was opposing God, trying to remain king, and literally physically trying to kill David, throwing spears at him multiple times, trying to kill him, trying to attack him, organizing armies to crush David so that Saul could remain king. No doubt David hated Saul, and yet David never acted hatefully towards Saul. He would not put his hand up against the Lord's anointed, David said. David said, I'm going to let God work this out. We should, we have to hate the murderer, hate the lying politician, hate the pedophile. We should hate the gossip. We should hate the liar. We should hate the enemies of God. All of those sinners are actively warring against God and his kingdom on earth. They want to destroy what God is doing on this earth. But here's the key that's so easy to miss. We must hate evil, but before we act, we should also be really aware of the sinner that still remains in here. This is why David ends the psalm the way he does. David didn't forget how he began the psalm. Run out of words. Just bring it back. What's the chorus? Let's let's loop it. Look, this is active. This is present. This isn't past tense. He said, Search. you searched me. You knew me, God. Now look what he says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way Everlasting. Verse one, you have searched me, past tense. But David says, you know what? I know I'm still a sinner and I need you to continue to search me. I've been saved by you and now I'm being sanctified by you. I've been made new and now I'm trying to live out that new identity and I need you, your constant presence in my life. I need you to point out areas areas that I've gone wrong. I need you to lead me by the hand. I'm trusting that you know everything about me, that you can search my heart like no man can and you can lead me the way nobody else can lead me. You know the days you have for me, Lord. So I right now give you my hand. I give you invitation into my life and I put my hand in your hand and ask you to lead me. This is one reason why we collectively confess our sins together each week. Yes, we are forgiven in Christ. Yes, we have been made new and we stand before God cleansed from all of our unrighteousness, yet sin remains in each of us and we continue to need God's gracious intervention into our life. We need his searching. We need his searchlight to get into the dark corners of our heart. And where he exposes sin, we need to confess it boldly, with a smile on our face, because repentance is a gift from a gracious God. It's not just something we do once, it's something we do all. It is the way of everlasting. This is also one of the reasons why. And you can as well. If you go to YouVersion, you can save our liturgy. It's one of the reasons I start every single day of my life with liturgy, just like we do here on a Sunday morning. Confession, absolution, hearing God give you grace over and over and over and over again. Yes, God has searched me. Yes, God knows me absolutely, but God is still at work in me, and I am still becoming more and more like Jesus. And in order for me to continue to grow into that image, I need the Spirit to continually search me, to continue to test my thoughts and renew them. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, to God, which is your spiritual worship. Look, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That act of giving your body up as a spiritual worship, that act as a living sacrifice is a daily act. We all know this. Living, the thing about living sacrifices is they can crawl off the altar. So we willingly, every morning, we crawl back up on the altar and we say, God, I am yours. You search me. Now, this is so interesting. When you get down in this text and you start reading it and studying it, David's calling out murderers violent. David himself was a murderer an adulterer, and a murderer. So what's the difference here between David and the wicked? Why doesn't David hate God like the wicked hate God? Now listen, remember, remember if we go back in the beginning of this sermon, that storm I talked about, how my location changed my perspective on the storm. The same is true with David. The way we would say it today is David was in Christ, that's his location. He's been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. He's been supernaturally changed from an enemy of God to a child of God. And how did that happen? This is absolutely fascinating. This will fry your circuits and cook your noodle here. The same God who knit David in the womb and knew David's frame knew all the days that David would do, knew all the deeds that David would do, knew all the thoughts that David would have. The God that knows everything about David and did that work in the womb was the same God who knit the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the womb of Mary. Jesus was knit in his mother's womb without any original sin, no help from the father's line. God was his father. Jesus was knit together in the womb of his mother sinlessly and lived his life sinlessly. And God had written in his book that the sinless one would live for sinners like us and the sinless one would die for sinners like us. And so Jesus Christ lived the life that none of us live, died the death we all deserve so that we could be in him and safe from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says it like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the murderers. Christ died for the rapist. Christ died for the liars. Christ died for David. Christ died for me. Christ died for you. Why isn't David afraid of the God who knows him better than he knows himself? David allowed God to search him and cleanse him and take his sins away from him and put them on Golgotha's bloody cross on the perfect sinless son of God and Jesus died with them so God can forgive him of all of his sin and gift him a righteousness that is not his own but comes from Jesus Christ himself. David was given a new heart. David's sins were paid for on the cross and Jesus' righteousness was credited to him. Now listen, here's the reality. There's only two types of people in this world. Those who allow God to search them and those who are still on the run. Where are you at this morning? Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you for your gift of salvation. I pray that you gave it to people here this morning and they received it. Every one of us in this room need your searching gaze. We need your sanctifying presence. We need you at work in our life. And so we confess our sins to you, Father God. and We invite you in to heal, to cleanse, to purify, to strengthen to lead us in the way of everlasting. And Father, I'm thankful this morning that we get to come together as your people who have been searched, who have been known, and we get to take the bread and the wine that represent your broken body and your shed blood. Mm, The one you knit together in the womb was also the one you tore asunder for us. And so we eat this meal in joy, knowing we are forgiven, knowing we have the spirit, know that we have a family in this room, and we worship you. Father, would you help us eat this rightly this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Amen.